in Matthew. Yeah, it's amazing how the Lord connects aspects of our worship service. As Darren mentioned, aspects of uh, leper colonies uh, being a real thing. Uh, the, the scripture reading today starts out about Jesus cleansing a leper. So amazing how the Lord connects aspects of his word to ministry in our time together. So Matthew chapter 8, 1 through 17. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, can you make me clean? And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law laying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits. With a word he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your perfect holy word. Lord, we just invite your Holy Spirit to apply this word to our lives, to reveal your truth to us, to illuminate your word, to allow us to see the glory of Jesus even more, to be able to walk with him closely. So Lord, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you'd be in this time as we learn from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we officially finished the Sermon on the Mount. And we had been in it for quite a while, doing some in-depth study on Jesus' teaching. And I was wondering, how long had we been in the Sermon on the Mount? Not just the beginning of Matthew, because we've been in, in Matthew since the very beginning. But So I went into our worship planning system, and I started clicking back. And then I looked, and I started clicking back. And then I started clicking back some more. So, November 27th. 2022 was the first Sunday of the Sermon on the Mount. 
amazing. There's been a lot of life that's gone by since then. There's people that have gotten married. There have been probably children born. We've had graduation. There's been a lot that's been going on. But it's been an amazing journey studying in depth in the teaching of Jesus. And that's one thing I'm thankful for so much for this church and all that we do, that it's just a a focus on God's Word, to study His Word, and I pray that it would be blessings to you and us as a church as we value and study His Scripture together. That was also Advent Sunday, by the way, the first Advent Sunday, which was pretty amazing. So, as we move on now from the Sermon on the Mount, as we move on from it, we're in Matthew chapter 8, the, the scripture verses that I just read. But before I get into it, I just kind of want to kind of bring us back into the, maybe a big picture of what Matthew is communicating to us as we get into Matthew chapter 8. So, um, it's going to be very quick, don't worry. Matthew chapter 1, uh, really what Matthew is doing in all of these chapters is he is showing, he's wanting us to see that Jesus is qualified to be the promised Messiah, to be the Savior that God said would come into the world. And in chapter 1, remember, he does that through a genealogy. He shows that Jesus goes all the way back and is through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. And he leads us to show that Jesus is not just the fulfillment of the promises to them, but that he's also the king that is promised the reigning king. And then he moves on from there, connecting King David to the birth narrative, going all the way to Joseph. And in that, we see that Jesus is qualified because he fulfills prophecy. We see the angel speaking to Joseph, and we see prophecy that's fulfilled from the Old Testament, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So we see Jesus qualified in that way through his birth account, the fulfillment of prophecy. And then in chapter 3, we moved to Jesus' baptism. And there was something so unique about Jesus' baptism that, again, shows that he is qualified to be the Messiah and the Savior. We had baptisms last week. Things happened during Jesus' baptism that you will never see happen at a baptism at this church or any church. When Jesus was baptized, it describes in Scripture that the heavens were opened and the Spirit descended on him as, as a dove. And then there was an audible voice of God saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is affirmed as the Messiah, as God's Son. He is qualified to be Savior. And then finally, moved into chapter 4, right before the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus is tempted, that he's led out into the desert, and that he is tempted by Satan himself, and he doesn't give in, proving that he is without sin and qualified to be Savior and Lord. And then, as I just said, we finished Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, showing that Jesus is qualified to be Messiah and Lord because of his authority in teaching, that Jesus taught like no other scribe, like no other leader, that Jesus' teaching was filled with the authority of God. And as Matthew finishes that out, he moves into what we just read today, where we're going to see pictures of Jesus' ministry moving forward. And we see specifically in the scripture today that Jesus' authority extends over all things in the physical world. It extends over our physical bodies. It extends over creations. And specifically we see in the scripture today, it extends over disease and sickness. And Jesus has the ability to heal. And so we see that. We see verses 1 through 4 is a man with leprosy. Verses 5 through 13 is a centurion's servant. And then verses 14 through 17 is Peter's mother-in-law, and then moving on to many. Now, we're going to go through each of those and, and extract some principles from these accounts of Jesus' healing that really help us in our faith. 
And we're going to see that. But before we do that, I want to kind of share with you kind of a little background principle as we get into studying kind of more of a narrative-based account of what is going on in Jesus' ministry. And so there's two important things to note as we kind of get into this. And number one is that the, the miracles that we're studying today, they're not in chronological order. It's really interesting. I, I put up, uh, you'll see a picture on the screen. I, I did some studying, and this is actually the chronological order of the miracles as they happened, as we saw, the, as we see presented today. So it, it's the, fir the first 10 is what I have there. But you see, the first miracle we know from the Gospel of John is Jesus turns water into wine. And then we have the healing of an official son, the delivering of a demoni demoniac in a synagogue. And then number four is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. So that's the one that actually happens first, but it's presented last in the scripture according to Matthew. And then we see the miraculous catch of the fish, and then we see the cleansing of the leper. After that, we have the healing of the paralytic, healing at the pool of Bethesda, which is in Jerusalem. So we have like a different change in location that happens there. Then we have the healing of a man with a withered hand, and then there comes the Sermon on the Mount. And then finally, right after the Sermon on the Mount, in chronological order, is the healing of the centurion's servant. So it's kind of interesting to see that as they're presented by Matthew is not the actual chronicle, chronological order in which they happened. And that's important to think about. But think about that as I share one of their things. Second, the second note, is that we know that Jesus did many more healings and miracles than are recorded in Scripture. He did many more. The end of the chapter of, of this week, we see that he heals many and many and many. They're not all recorded. And we know from the Gospel of John that in his writing that John comments on this, in John chapter 20, verse 30, John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So why am I mentioning you these kind of you know, background notes as we get uh, ready to study these miracles, these healings of Jesus? I think it's important when we study God's word that we realize this principle, and that's this, that the Lord speaks truth through both what the gospel writer selected for you to read and the order in which you read it. Both the word given to us and the order is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that's important in any scripture that we read to know because it has a great purpose to it. The Apostle John goes on to compliment that, showing the great purpose. And he says in John chapter 20, 31, he says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So as we go through these three miracles today, yes, we are going to see that they present Jesus as another way of being qualified to be Messiah. And yes, we are going to see that all of these miracles present Jesus as having power over everything in this physical world, including disease, including our bodies. We're going to see that. But my prayer today is just like John wrote, that as we see these miracles and the order they're presented, and as Matthew describes them, that each one of them would bring us to a place of recognizing that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is Lord, and that they would bring us into a closer relationship with him. That's my prayer today as we go through these three miracles, these three healings that we see in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. 
So let's jump into the first one, the healing of the leper. Let's take a look at that, the healing of, a, of the leper. Now, leprosy was used to describe a various amount of skin disorders. And, and it's not necessarily really beneficial to go into the details of all of those. But the reason that we want to think about the aspect of leprosy is not the details of the disease, but the impact of the disease if you were diagnosed with it the impact of the disease if you were diagnosed with leprosy. Now, the Old Testament speaks much to this. The Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 13 recognizes the highly contagious aspect of this disease. And it goes through 44 verses in Leviticus 13 to help the priests of the time to be able to examine a person and diagnose if yes, they have it or no, they don't. And by the way, I, I don't recommend that you go and read that chapter as follow-up before lunch today. Read it sometime later on. But at the end of that chapter, this is where we get to the point of the impact of uh, if you were diagnosed with leprosy. And we see that in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45 through 46. It says this, The leprous person who has the disease, so they've been diagnosed with it, shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So you see the impact if you're diagnosed with this disease. There's two main things, that you're marked as unclean and that you're isolated. You're marked as unclean by your prescribed appearance, what you have to do and what you have to wear. You're marked as unclean. And then secondly, you're isolated, you're separated. You can no longer live within the community of God's people inside the camp. You have to live outside the camp until the disease goes away, if the disease goes away. So as you think about the impact of that physical disease, I think it gives us maybe a little bit of an understanding of why Matthew may have placed this healing where he did, coming off of the Sermon on the Mount. As we come off the Sermon on the Mount, as you remember when we studied it, Jesus is communicating his standard of righteousness, God's standard of right living for us. And as, as we went through the in-depth study of, of anger and lust and divorce and how to love our enemies and worry and anxiety and, and how to live a life that is devoted to the Lord, it's easy to come away from that teaching and feeling the conviction that I, I can't live up to that. It's easy to come away from that. And that conviction is a reminder, it's a pointer to our sin. It's a pointer to only one person can live up to that, and that's Jesus. And as we come to the realization of our sin, as we realize that we can't meet that standard, we realize that we are unclean. We realize that we are separated from God. The teaching of Scripture is reinforced again and again that sin separates us from God. It marks us as unclean. It makes us isolated from God, separated from Him. That's the truth of what Scripture says. Isaiah, there's two verses in Isaiah that, that 
enforce this, that, that communicate that to us. Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. And Isaiah goes on to say that even the things that you do that are good, that are righteous things, because of the impact of sin in our life, our selfishness, our desire to do things for ourselves, to do things opposite of what God wants us to do, that even the good things we pursue are not righteous. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Just as the physical condition of the man with leprosy points to our sin that marks us as unclean and isolates us from God, it likewise, though, praise God, points us to the solution. Humbly approaching Jesus by faith. Humbly approaching Jesus by faith is the solution to our sin. It's that first step that we all need to take. Look again at Matthew chapter 8, 2 through 3. Look how you see it. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. The man with leprosy recognized that Jesus had the power and the authority to cure his disease. He comes before him kneeling. And I love this word. If you study the word in Scripture, it has two aspects to it. The first aspect to that word is, yes, it's describing his posture, that the man is actually coming and kneeling down, and not just kneeling on his knees, but his forehead is coming to touch the ground. The posture of humility. But at the same time, this word can also be translated to worship. It can be translated to worship him. It's amazing how the Lord would forgive our sin by faith when we come before him humbly and recognize who he is, that that is an aspect of worship. Being able to come before the Lord and completely being vulnerable with our need in his presence, an aspect of worship. And Jesus says to him that he will be clean. He's humble and asking for it. He's not demanding. Humbly coming before the Lord is a way for our sin to be forgiven. Only in Jesus. Another amazing part of this whole encounter is that the law itself, the law says that this man needs to be separated that he needs to be remaining away from people. But you know what? He goes to Jesus. There's nobody else like Jesus. We can always go to Jesus. The law in Scripture shows us that we need to stay away. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can bring anything to him. Because Jesus is the Son of God, he has the power to forgive all of our sins because of what he did on the cross. Now, it's amazing. When you think about what was going on here, you see that the man needed to stay away from others. And as Jesus comes to him, 
Humanly speaking, Jesus comes to him. He's in proximity. Jesus touches him. So humanly speaking, it's all over for Jesus. Jesus is now unclean. Jesus now likely has the disease. But because Jesus is the Son of God, the power of Jesus to heal is transferred to the man and not the sickness of the man to Jesus. The power of Jesus to heal is transferred to the man. And that's such a picture of what Christ has done for us on the cross. That when it comes to sin, the Old Testament law reveals it. It reveals a standard that we cannot meet. You just read the Ten Commandments and you know that we can't fulfill that. But remember what Jesus said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that he came to fulfill the law. So the next principle is this that we learn from this healing miracle of Jesus is that when we approach Jesus humbly, by faith, embracing him as the Son of God, who was punished for our sin, his perfect righteousness is transferred to us. His perfect righteousness is transferred to us. And spiritually, what happens spiritually, is the impact, the punishment that we deserve for our sin is transferred to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21 says it this way, For our sake he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's amazing how this healing miracle points to the greater work of what Jesus does for our salvation. So how can we apply this principle to our life? What can we do to live it out? Number one If you're here today and you've never embraced Jesus as the Son of God, as your Savior, that's the first step. He needs to take upon that punishment that you're holding for your sin. And he needs to transfer to you his righteousness. That's the beginning of a relationship with God. But secondly, what about us here today that have already done that? Well, we know from Scripture that we're not free from sin and its impact on our life until we are in heaven. There's barriers that come up when we entertain sin in our life. So I ask you today, what is the spiritual leprosy in your life? What is causing the distance between you and God? Are you here today and you're feeling isolated from the Lord and his community? Are you here today and you don't have that closeness to the Lord? You can go to Jesus. You don't have to stay away. Jesus wants you to come to him and surrender it as an act of worship. To surrender whatever it is that you need to fully lay down before him. You can bring it to him. And by the power of his blood, he will always forgive it. And then finally, as we, as we move on, we see one more thing in this section of verses. And it, it, it advises us this, that let your life prove his name. Let your life prove his name. I'm using that word prove for a reason. Look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 4. It says, And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. 
There are quite a few places in the New Testament where when Jesus, in the course of his ministry, he does a healing, or he casts a demon out of somebody, or there's some kind of revelation about himself, and, and after doing that, he, he tells people, don't go and say anything about this. And, and in studying this, the, the, one of the main reasons why he does this is to really stay on course with the Father's timeline in going to the cross, to stay on course with the Father's will. But there's sometimes in this situation, there's a specific reason. And that it says that he needs to go, this, Jesus wants this man to go and offer proof or a testimony, in other ways that word is translated testimony, to the priests in Jerusalem. Jesus is wanting them to know that he is the Messiah, that he is the one behind this miraculous healing. But we read in the scripture in Mark's account of this that, that the man does not do that. And he actually doesn't do what Jesus says. And that's another sermon for another time on spiritual maturity. But it makes us think about who in your life is Jesus asking you to go to? Is there somebody specifically in your life that he is putting on your heart that you need to be obedient to go and give testimony and give proof to what he's done in your life? He may be asking you to do that. And I encourage you, and be obedient to what he's putting on your heart. Next, we move on and we see the next healing, this miraculous healing of Jesus with the healing of the centurion's servant. The healing of the centurion's servant. Now, one item of background to know about Matthew, and, we, and I think we were, were taught this in one of the introductory sermons, is that Matthew's gospel is called the Jewish gospel. And the reason for that is, is that Matthew knows that he is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. We can see that in the things that he communicates about Jewish life. We can see that in the verses that he references from the Old Testament and how he uses them. So Matthew, when he is writing... He is writing with a Jewish audience in mind. And because of that, in this account of the healing of the centurion's servant, he withholds some information that he knows that his audience would know. He knows that his audience would be familiar with the centurion that he's talking about here. However, none of us are Jewish, Jewish audience here, I don't think. And so a lot of us are not familiar with the individual that Jesus is talking about. So Matthew, so we go to another book in the, in the scriptures to, to find out more information, and that's the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is writing to a non-Jewish audience, and Luke brings in this information for his audience to know. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 7, 1 through 6, to help us out and bring that information back in. So Luke 7, 1 through 6, this is kind of the prequel, all right? It says, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, and now this is where we pick up Matthew's parallel account. This is where Matthew's account picks up. So we have this group with Jesus going to the house of the centurion. The centurion likely sees him coming. 
And he sends out this word to Jesus. Matthew chapter 8, 8 through 10. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, I love this word, he marveled and said to those who followed him, and remember, this is the crowd from the Sermon on the Mount, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I feel like one of the keys in understanding the impact of this healing account is that what is Jesus marveling at? And so when we, when we look at what Jesus is marveling at, yet the, the easy answer is faith, right? He's, he's marveling at the faith of this centurion soldier, this one who has not grown up under the Old Testament scriptures, one who has likely been exposed to much of the, the cultural gods and, and ways of that time. That this servant has faith. This soldier has faith. But you've got to dig a little bit deeper what's behind that. And that comes out in what the centurion says. That the centurion understands authority and delegation, and he understands it with respect to Jesus. He understands authority and delegation with respect to Jesus. In his world... The Roman emperor had all authority, and that authority was delegated. So when one of his soldiers was told to do something, if the centurion told that soldier to go do something and he didn't do it, the soldier was not just disobeying the centurion, he was disobeying the authority of the emperor that was behind it. And the amazing thing is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, this centurion understood that concept related to Jesus. He understood it related to who Jesus is. He realized that the power of Jesus was sourced in the authority of God. He understood that when Jesus spoke, that God spoke. He understood that if Jesus expressed power in doing something, that that was an expression of the very power of God. And Jesus marveled at that. That it was truly similar to when, when Jesus asks Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says to Jesus, you are you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus replies to him, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but it was the Lord himself that did that. So I think the centurion has this similar moment where the Holy Spirit reveals this so clearly. And I think that, that gives us a principle to apply for us, and that's this. To experience salvation, our faith must be in the understanding that Jesus is God. Matthew is wanting us to see the importance of not just having faith in general, but the absolute necessity of what our faith is in. Our faith can't be in all kinds of things, and that guarantees us forgiveness of sin and a place in eternity with God. Our faith needs to be in Jesus. And that begins with the understanding that Jesus is God. It is so crucial what your faith is in. Understanding that Jesus is God and putting your faith in that is the foundation 
of saving faith. No other faith saves. You see, the Jewish people had faith, but it wasn't faith in Jesus. Their faith was in their own ability to do things for God. They thought that they themselves, think of the word, were worthy before God by what they did. That word worthy is familiar, right? Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 4 through 5, what Luke brought into the discussion and how it connects. Luke 7, 4 through 5. These were the elders that the centurion sent to go get Jesus. And this is what they're saying to Jesus to get him to come. He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. The faith of the Jews is in what they did for God. It was not yet placed in Jesus. That kind of faith does not save. The faith that saves recognizes that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Son of God. And we see that in the words of the centurion. Look at what he says when Jesus is approaching the home. Matthew 8, verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Saving faith in Jesus produces the opposite. Saving faith in Jesus produces the understanding that we are not worthy at all. There is nothing that we can bring to the table. We are dead in our sins only by his sacrificial work on the cross. Only by what he did can we boast. Now, as we, as we kind of come out and finish up this, this healing, there's an important thing that we have to clarify. When it comes to the healing of the servant, we need to clarify how to interpret verse 13. Look at verse 13, Matthew 8, 13. It says, And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Now, I want to tell you, there are some people who take that verse and they teach it incorrectly. There are some people that take that verse and, and they teach an aspect of faith healing. Or in other words, like if you name it, you can claim it. And that is not what the scripture teaches. There are people who say that if you pray hard enough and if you have a strong enough faith, then you will be healed. And concurrent to that, they say, if you're not healed, it's your own fault because you don't have a strong enough faith. That is false teaching and incorrect. Healing is always grounded in the will of God. It's always grounded in the will of God. But yet, an incredible mystery that we are likewise called by prayer and petition to intersect with the will of God. In our human mind, we'll never understand how it all works out. But healing is grounded in the will of God. Jesus did not act because of what the centurion brought to the table. But the means in which Jesus carried it out was in line with what the centurion asked of him. The centurion asked that Jesus would heal by saying the word, and Jesus did so. To try to help us understand that, an expositor's commentary put it this way. I thought this was helpful. It says, 
Jesus performed the miracle not in proportion to the centurion's faith, nor because of the centurion's faith, but in content, what was expected by the centurion's faith. Healing always is grounded in the will of God. But God gloriously allows us to participate in his will by prayer and petition. So as Matthew closes out this account, he adds one more detail. He adds one more detail for his Jewish audience that Luke doesn't have. And this detail especially needs to be heard by the Jewish audience, and especially needs to be heard by us today, those of us who have grown up in the tradition of the church. Look at Matthew 8, verse 11. Matthew says this of Jesus' teaching, I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This principle is important. It's so important for us, those of us who have grown up in the routine and the tradition of the church. The principle is this, don't let faith in the things of God prevent you from putting your faith in the Son of God. Don't let faith in the things of the church, in the things of God, prevent you from putting your full trust in Jesus as the Son of God. The Jews, unlike the Gentile centurion, they grew up with the Old Testament scriptures. They heard the stories they had the prophecies, but yet they put their faith in what they thought made them worthy before God. Faith in the things of God and not the Son of God will leave you still paying for your own sin. And if that's not resolved by the time you depart from this world, Jesus is the one who says exactly what happens when you pay the price for your own sin. And all of the tradition, all of the background, all of the stories, all of the serving is not going to do anything. He says it like this, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We'll be separated from God for eternity. The Bible is clear. If you believe in heaven, you have to believe in hell. The scripture is clear about both places. But there's good news. If you're here today and the Holy Spirit is revealing to you that, yes, I've put my trust in just tradition. I've put my trust in the things of the church. Jesus calls you to respond. Jesus calls you to come before him, to kneel down before him and respond by faith in him and him alone, in trusting him as your Savior and Lord. And if you do that, asking him to be your Savior you're counted among those who are going to the banquet. That's what he says it will happen. At, when he returns, there will be a great gathering. There will be a great gathering of worship. There will be a great gathering banquet. And brothers and sisters who know Jesus as their Savior and Lord will be there and enjoy that time. And looking forward to that is something we certainly do. So finally, let's conclude with the last miraculous healing. And this one will be quick. This is Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. Matthew chapter 8, 
14 to 16. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. Now remember, this miracle took place chronologically first, right? So those coming into the house are not the full group of disciples. We, we hear from one of the other accounts of this that it's Peter, his brother Andrew, James, and John. The four of them, probably other family members there. But what that does is it makes us realize that this miracle, this healing, is personal. All the others were people that they didn't know, but this is personal. This is Peter's mother-in-law. This is family. His brother lives there too. It's personal. James and John are business partners. They know the family well. This is personal to them. It reminds us that as we journey through this life, sickness and disease, it's personal. It greatly impacts our lives, especially when it's a severe or chronic condition. It's painful to suffer through debilitating conditions that don't go away. They impact our whole approach to life. They impact our quality of life. And sometimes, if it's not happening to us, it's even more painful to watch someone you care about and love go through it and not be able to do anything about it. It's personal. That's how Peter and Andrew are engaged in this situation. But this healing miracle gives us hope. It gives us hope. Jesus comes and he heals Peter's mother-in-law they're encouraged and amazed by it, so they go out. They go out. Mark chapter 1, verse 32, it explains, kind of gives you this visual of this gathering. He says that that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered at the door. Just think about the impact of sickness and disease that's personal for me and personal for you and all of these people who are impacted. And Jesus looks out with compassion and he heals. He heals all who are there. And Matthew in this section of scripture gives us great encouragement. He gives us great encouragement at the healing power of Jesus. And he's, he quotes an Old Testament scripture from Isaiah. And it's found in Matthew 8, verse 17, our last verse. It says, Matthew says, This was done to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. It's representing the suffering servant to Christ. It points us to the cross. So if you're here today and you are going through suffering and you're going through pain from some type of disease or somebody who is close to you that you love is doing that, look to the cross. Your power and your strength is found in the cross. Because what does it say? What does Isaiah go on to say in Isaiah 53, 5? It says this, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. There is always hope in Jesus for physical healing, no matter what. There is always hope in him. But 
That's not always his plan. And if it's not his plan, he will sustain you on your journey. He will be there with you every step of the way. As Paul said in his suffering, his power, the power of Jesus, is made perfect in our weakness. And the greater hope that we have is what Jesus accomplished on the cross is what he will bring us to one day. And I'll close with that, that all of us can look forward to, that this broken world that experiences disease and suffering by so many will one day be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth filled with those who know Jesus as their Savior. And it's described in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. And it says that that place will be a place of no suffering. That place will be a place where there's no more pain. And the Lord will be with us, and he will be our God. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more tears. The old is gone, and the new has come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you right now. And Lord, if anything, as we read these accounts of your miraculous healing, it's so amazing of the depth at which they point to you and you alone. That they speak to what you've done for us. They speak of your incredible power. And Jesus, I pray that as we reflect on what you've done, and we reflect on who you are, that our faith would grow, our faith would be emboldened. Lord, that we would recognize your presence with us. And Lord, that we would be able to worship you more and more and bring you more and more glory with our lives. And that, Lord, if there is any here today that have not taken that state, step to trust you as Savior, that that would be that first step for them. And they would look forward to the great hope that we have in the new heaven, in the new earth one day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.